Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is Jay Cawson. Jay, you are here to crunch the numbers just a little less than a month out. And I have to warn you, I spent the morning talking to your buddy, Sean Trendy, over at Real Clear Politics. So I know what's really going on with these numbers. Oh, well, then you should just have him on. <laughs> no, no, no. He's fantastic. We've got to get the uh, Jay Cost Weekly Standard take. Besides, I want to run uh, get a head-to-head here on some of the states. But first, I just want to oh, ask now you. Oh, that, that's pressure. It is pressure, absolutely. I just want to ask you, where are we in the big picture from the polling? And the reason I ask is, on the one level, you look at all the news stories. Obama's very unpopular. His popularity is down. The Democrats are downtrodden. Headlines all the time say, you know, Democrats are conceding the Senate. But then you look at the polling, and what you see are a bunch of tight, narrow races, even in red states like Georgia and North Carolina. Right. That's a good question. Um, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And so the answer that I've come up with I, is, is the following that, you know, Barack Obama is very unpopular uh, across the country, especially in the states that are going to decide control of the Senate, which is what really matters this cycle. Um, So any state where you have a Republican running against a Democrat that's not a deep blue state like Rhode Island, you know, Rhode Island's off the table. But in Colorado and Iowa and then also Alaska, Arkansas, Louisiana, where the Republican can say, my opponent is, um, you know, an ally of Barack Obama, and have that really be the end of the argument. They're doing very well. So, for instance, what was Mark Udall's response to Cory Gardner? Mark Udall's a Democrat in Colorado. How, how did he respond to um, Cory Gardner's attacks? You're an Obama club. He talked about the war on women, which is a phony made-up issue that's not working because Cory Gardner is not waging a war on women. Same thing's happening in Iowa. You know, Joni Ernst is attacking Bruce Braley because Bruce Braley is a House member and has a long record of supporting Obama. What does Braley have in response? He doesn't have very much. Same thing with Dan Sullivan, the Republican in Alaska. Same thing with um, uh, Bill Cassidy in Louisiana and Tom Cotton in Arkansas. I mean, my goodness, Mark Pryor launched an attack a couple weeks ago on Ebola against Tom Cotton. They don't have anything to talk about. But here's the underlying difficulty, Michael, and this is, this is, this is the catch. And it, it remains to be seen how big of a catch it will be. In any of the major states where there's a tweak to this dynamic, the Republicans are struggling because the Republican Party is unpopular too. At this point, in most of the major straightforward swing states, it's looking increasingly like the public is going to take their frustration out on Barack Obama, and where there's no tweak, the Republican is, is in the lead or tied or doing very well. But go to Kansas. You have Greg Orman. He says, I'm not an Obama clone. I'm an independent. Now, it happens not really to be true, but that's sort of beside the point, at least in terms of the claim. Greg Orman, you know, the polls have been bouncing around significantly, but Kansas is a very red state, and that is a very close race. You see the same thing in North Carolina. What's the tweak in North Carolina? Kay Hagan is attacking Tom Tillis for his record as the head of the North Carolina legislature, which is unpopular. So whereas Mark Udall is reduced to the war on women and Tom Cotton, or excuse me, Mark Pryor is reduced to Ebola, Kay Hagan gets to run on education. So she's got a narrow lead. In Kentucky and Georgia, again, these are two states where, you know, the Democrats should be finished. 
but the Democrats nominated candidates who's, who, with family reputations. Michelle Nunn is, is the daughter of Sam Nunn, and he's got an enormously uh, popular reputation in Georgia, and it's sort of helping her along. Allison Lundgren Grimes in Kentucky, similarly, uh, is uh, the daughter of, I don't remember who, but she's part of a political family in that state. And then meanwhile, Mitch McConnell is the face of the Senate Republicans. So in those states, you know, you see kind of a struggle. And so ultimately, what we're waiting to see happen, we have two questions, right? The first question is, are voters in those states where it's a straightforward, up and down, uh, for Obama or against Obama, are they really going to follow through on what they appear to be prepared to follow through on? And by the way, there are eight Democrat, I would say actually there's seven Democrat-held states like that where um, the, the, the country, you know, the voters in those states look like they're ready to vote out the Obama clone. There's seven. But there's like four or five states with these tweaks. And we don't, it's just too soon to say whether or not the unpopularity of the Republican Party, which is really a factor in those states, is going to undermine the overall conservative campaign. It's too Here, soon to say. Here's what's interesting to me. Um, uh, reporting today that not only is President Obama not out on the campaign trail, and he's not, but even Michelle Obama is out on the not on the campaign trails. Uh, Mark Hemingway has a quote, quote uh, in the Weekly Standard blog today, uh, someone saying, "We love Michelle. She rocks, but she brings the Obama name." Meanwhile, Mitt Romney is like you know a rock star out on the campaign trail. Jay Cost, if you had told people in 2012 that Mitt Romney would be rocking the campaign trail and Obama would be in hiding, they would have had you institutionalized. <laughs> and yet, despite that divide in the candidates. The party, it seems as though the Republican Party's brand weight is so awful that even in this circumstance, it could truly put a Senate majority at risk. Yeah, that's right. And I think the important thing to appreciate here, Michael, is that, you know, here, here's a disturbing statistic for, 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 for you and the podcast audience. So by my calculation, the, the Republican Party has occupied the Oval Office during every recession since the 1950s, except one, except one. There was a, a, a small recession in 1980 that, uh, frankly, helped generate the Reagan landslide. But otherwise, it's been Republicans in office. Now, a lot of that just has to do with quirks of the business cycle. But look, I think it also has to do or, I mean, I will put it this way, regardless of the causes of that, and Democrats probably chortle to think that they actually know how to manage the business cycle, which is utter nonsense, of course. But regardless of the luck or the lack thereof, you know, look, that weighs on the party. You know, the party suffered and continues to suffer in its reputation for the recession of 2008. Now, fortunately for the party, Barack Obama squandered all of the goodwill that was handed to him because of that recession, all of the political capital, he, he, he well, I don't you want to say he squandered it, he spent it on Obamacare, right? So the Democrats are unpopular, and the Democrats are unpopular because of the weak recovery. But Republicans still, that doesn't, because the country is now angry at Democrats, doesn't mean that they're any less angry at Republicans. And I think it's fair for you know, conservatives, especially conservative reformers, uh, to, to ask themselves, well, what has the Republican Party in Washington, D.C. done 
to improve its image in the last four years. And I would suggest that there is precious little they've done. In fact, in so many respects, they've gone in the opposite direction. You know, I mean, mentioned earlier a moment ago, um, the weak recovery, particularly in, in wages. And what is the establishment Republican response in Washington? An amnesty that would flood the country with new immigrant workers. And, and if you believe the CBO, and everybody in Washington believes the CBO, if you believe them, it would drive wages down. Now, how is that any sort of solution? And, and by the way, juxtapose what this Republican establishment has done compared to the Republican establishment in 1994 with the contract with America. If you look at those 10 items uh, nowadays, they'll seem kind of commonplace, but back then they were new and fresh and generated a real sense that this was a party committed to reform. Can anybody with a straight face say that the Republican Party in Washington, D.C. is committed to reform? You know, what's interesting, Jay, is you look at the candidates who are running for Senate, and it's hard to see what they're committed to as a group at all. You know, the range of candidates from Scott Brown to Joni Ernst is a pretty big you know, swath of ideological territory you're covering there. Is there a Republican theme for 2014? And do you think that if there were, or if there had been, or if you know somehow in the next three weeks they could put something together, that that would help? Or is just anti-Obama the smart way for the Republicans to play it? Well, I think it's, I don't think it's the smart way to play it, uh, because I think that this party needs a fundamental reevaluation of itself. That I, I think that the party has maybe not noticed it because the Democrats have done such a terrible job since they've been handed power in 2009. Uh, but I think this party is in the midst of an existential crisis. I don't think that there is a consensus in this party about its future and where it's going. And I think that I'm very concerned for the future of the party in 2016. I think the Democrats are going to coalesce around Hillary Clinton, who, despite all of her many faults, uh, will nevertheless be able to raise gobs and gobs of money. And I am very concerned that the Republicans are going to devolve into a kind of ideological tribalism uh, where various and sundry um, – you know, candidates try to rally, you know, 40% of the electorate to squeak through the nomination, something akin to Survivor. You know, I'm, that's my concern. Because, look, I don't think the party, if you compare this party to where it was, say, in 1980 uh, or 1994 or even 2000 with George W. Bush, I just I just see a party that is, at least on domestic politics, adrift. I think there's been a more firming up. Um, on, inter on the international front, as we've sort of seen the awful consequences of Obama's lackadaisical approach, I think Republicans are remembering why they've always been in favor, or at least have for 60 years been in favor of a robust, muscular foreign policy. But on domestic policy, I don't see anything like that, and I think it could be a huge problem for the party. And look, I, I think it's going to be a problem in November as well. Well, speaking of November, let's roll through some of the races. So do you cons agree that the, the so-called gimmies, uh, West Virginia, Montana, South Dakota, are in fact gimmies, or do you see some lightning striking in South Dakota? Oh, there's definitely something happening in South Dakota. And South Dakota is actually, I would put it on the list with Kentucky, Kansas, and Georgia as this state where you just take a little tweak – and in this case, there's this independent former Republican, but he endorsed Obama twice, Larry Pressler, who's decided to run. I mean, Pressler is a true gadfly. 
but, you know, he's picking up like 50 percent, not quite 50, actually, more like 40 percent of the Republican vote running as an independent. Um, and the Democrats are jumping in now. The Democrats are probably thinking, hey, if we can get our guy up to 40 percent of the vote, we can win. And maybe they will. So I certainly um, don't see that as a gimme anymore. I think there's only true two gimmies or two true gimmies left. That's Montana and West Virginia. Okay, and then of the uh, the the non gimmies, the close ones: Kentucky, uh, Georgia, South Dakota, and uh, oops, I'm missing one there. Kansas. Kansas. Yeah. What What is your prediction as of right now? How are those going to turn out? Well, I think I probably feel most confident about Georgia, not because of any inherent strength in the in the candidate David Perdue, who's now been hit with outsourcing attacks and very reminiscent of Romney's. 47% attack, um, and, but what I, I think that the, uh, the, uh, the their secret weapon, the Republican secret weapon in Georgia, is the runoff. Um, I think Michelle Nunn could very well win a win a plurality on election day. I have a hard time seeing her winning an outright majority, especially if the Libertarian candidate continues to pull three percent, which I'm guessing. Is if if Purdue ends up losing, I think it'll be because he can't he can't peel off the libertarian vote. So in that case, I wouldn't envision. And look, something like that happened to Saxby Chambliss in 2008, who was running for this very seat. And uh, he won like 49.8% of the vote. And then I think uh, generated a runoff a couple months later. And I think he won something like 55% of the vote, because what's going to happen in that is that minority turnout will drop. Um, white turnout will drop, but white conservative turnout will probably be relatively robust. So I actually think that that seat's I feel the most comfortable about that seat of, of the remaining ones. Um, Kentucky, I mean, look, Mitch McConnell has a lead, but he hasn't been able to put it away, and it just you know, it remains to be seen. I don't know. And again, it, it gets back to this sort of you know, the lesser of two evils. I, what does the country see as being the lesser of two evils? A Democrat who has quasi-credibly established herself as being independent from Obama, which maybe Allison Grimes can do, or, you know, Mitch McConnell, the face of the Senate Republicans who are not popular. I, I don't know. I but mean, you gotta, I, I you got to pick. you got to give me a uh, – right now, if you had to call it, how would you call it? Oh, Lord. I mean, I, I, I mean look, I, I think that McConnell – I think McConnell has a lead of like four points right now. And, I, and looking at the internals of the polls suggests to me that the undecided slash libertarian voters look more like Republicans. So I, I would give McConnell the edge. And in South Dakota? South Dakota, I, I, I genuinely don't know. I, I mean, I think, you know, I've been talking to people for a couple months now and the sort of like off the radar fretting that that Rick uh, that uh, Governor Rounds hasn't been able to, um, you know, consolidate his position. And he's run a terrible campaign, lackadaisical. He's being outspent enormously on television by super PACs and running what appears to me to be a f trumpeting up a phony baloney scandal that that really had almost nothing to do with him as governor but it, it's starting to stick and I you know I just I don't know um, I, I was inclined a couple days ago to, to sort of you know say well you know we'll a couple days ago I said to myself well let's wait and see what the the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee does, and lo and behold, yesterday they announced they're putting in a million dollars. So that tells you everything you need to know about that. What about what about um, uh, Kansas? Has that gone from very good for Republicans to very bad, and then back to pretty good again? I'm I w I'm not prepared to call it very good, uh, pretty good again. 
I, I think it was it was a terrible situation. Um, but I I sort of am increasingly been thinking of Greg Orman a lot like Ross Perot in 1992, which is to say that Ross Perot. I mean, if there was ever a year we were going to have an independent win the presidency, it was going to be that year. You know, I mean, you had a president, incumbent president, whose job approval rating was in the 30s at running against, you know, a, a dope smoking, draft dodging, philandering governor of a small, poor state. I mean, it was just perfect opportunity. And, you know, Perot charged out of the gate. Well, you know, Perot gets on the campaign trail and he starts running a campaign and he does a terrible job of it. And he goes from being what you could argue to be the, the favorite to win to winning 18% of the vote. And I kind of see Orman that way in a lot of respects, too. Like, Orman had an opening here, but I, I just am immensely unimpressed with him. Um, immensely. And, and I also think that he's actually a Democrat, too. And I think the evidence is pretty strongly in favor of that, that he would be overwhelmingly tilted toward the Democrats. And he just keeps saying these nonsensical things about what he would do in the Senate. For instance, a couple days ago he said, well, you know, I might caucus with one side, but if they're not doing what I want them to do, I'll switch sides. You know, you can't do that. You can't switch back and forth because the switch, the switch that switches the majority switches all of the committee money, all the committee staff, all of the office space. It's, it upends the entire Senate. You can't do that. And then just yesterday, I think it was yesterday, maybe it was two days ago, it was reported today, I think in the Washington Examiner, he said, well, you know, if I'm in the Senate, I am going to insist that whoever the Senate Majority Leader is, isn't Harry Reid or Mitch McConnell. Again, you can't do that. You get to vote, you get to vote on caucusing for the entire chamber. It's a separate vote on the Majority Leader. You can't do that. That's not how it works. You know, like it's almost as if he doesn't even he doesn't know how the Senate works. I mean, and it's just to the point where it's like somebody who is in the lead in the polls for the United States Senate three weeks out should really have a basic grasp of how the Senate works, and I don't think he does. You know, and if, I think my guess at this point, honestly, like and gun to my head, I, right. I you know, I would say Roberts is going to gut it out in Kansas because I think this guy's a lightweight. You know, if he were a Tea Partier, Orman would be a front-page news story every day. But oh, we'll move on. Absolutely, yeah, would but, be. But we'll move on because we're kind of going long here. I just want to get the uh, to, to the big finish. A couple of specific races: North Carolina and Iowa. What happens there, Jay Cost? Well, I feel a lot better for Republican chances in Iowa than I do in North Carolina. Uh, look, I think that uh, Bruce Braley, who's the Democratic candidate in Iowa is is not a good candidate and I think that Iowa is a very independent state which means it it's it's attitude swings around a lot and and the polling I've seen suggests they're very upset with the president Joni Ernst seems like she's a pretty good candidate and they tried through the summer the Democrats tried through the t summer to tag her as an extremist and it doesn't look like it, it's worked um, I think you know the opposite in a lot of respects is true in North Carolina I think that Kay Hagan has, has run a good campaign, and I think Tillis is a weak candidate. Now, that being said, Hagan's only up two points, and given the national dynamics, two points is not a very uh, comforting lead. Three weeks out, you know, you go back through recent electoral history, you see a lot of incumbents who are up two points end up losing. So, But at this point, gun to my head, I would say Joni Ernst wins in Iowa, and um, Kay Hagan wins in North Carolina. So we're so glad you joined us for this podcast, Jay Cost. Thanks so much for your time. 
Okay, thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.